Welcome everyone to episode 58 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is retired captain from the Oklahoma City Fire Department, Chris Fields. Now you've probably seen a photo of Chris. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning photo. It's uh, of him carrying Bailey, uh, you know, one year, one day old Bailey. Uh, from the federal building in Oklahoma City after it was bombed. And uh, it's an amazing photo. But uh, this is all about the story behind that and what comes afterwards. So I'm just going to shut up and let Chris tell it. So here he is, Chris Fields. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live We've got my special guest with me today, Chris Fields. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you having me on. I'm glad you're here. Um, so let's just kind of jump into it. You've okay. been kind of involved in the fire service for a pretty long time. You started out early on kind of hanging around all the guys, right? Uh, yeah, I did. I grew up, uh, my best friend growing up, his uh, dad was a, uh, was a preacher and was the chaplain of the Oklahoma City Fire Department. So being with him on the weekends sometimes and running around with him, we would go to the fire stations and hang out and uh, just kind of grew up around the environment and really liked the, uh, the the brotherhood of the job, you know. Uh, of course, you know, back then there wasn't a brotherhood and a sisterhood. It was pretty much male dominant, you know, back then. But uh, it was just something I really enjoyed and, uh, uh, you know, and the way the the way they were treated and respected and, and looked upon by the public, I, you know, it was a, just something I wanted to do and uh, w- was lucky enough to, to land a job when I was two weeks before I turned 21 years old. Nice. Good deal. Um, so you started, uh, when did you actually start? You know, um, July 12th, 1985 was my right. first day of rookie class. Nice. How long was rookie school back then? Uh Eight, six weeks or eight weeks? Not, not very long. <laughs> no, no, it's because usually I imagine it's about the same with with you know Oklahoma City and about anywhere else. Now, now usually it's six months, seven months, however long. Yeah, yeah. Now they're I think they're they're about four months or so easily. But you know, but yeah, back then it was uh, yeah six or let's see, uh, eight weeks I guess because I started uh, July twelfth of eighty five and we graduated rookie class September. 12th, I think, matter of fact. So it was eight weeks. Very so, good. You weren't, you weren't even a firefighter for very long, were you? I mean, you started climbing the ranks pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was, I guess I was an overachiever back then. I was, I was fortunate that, um, back then to, on the promotional exam, it's changed now. You have to have a few more years service, but back then after three years, you could test to be a driver, engineer, sergeant, you know, it's different, whatever different fire departments call it. But, uh, and I used to think, man, that's, that's three years. That's not much experience, but I was just, I was blessed. My first three years, I was at very active, uh, fire stations. And of course, you know, nobody makes as many fires as we used to, of course, you know, but, uh, as many as we made back then, I just felt comfortable, you know, being in that role. And so I took the test and, and made it. And then, four years after that. So with seven years, four years after that's when I made captain. So, uh, it's funny, a guy that I went to high school with, we were actually two of the youngest to ever, 
be promoted. You know, we said seven years on the job, and we were both both captains. So uh, it was like I say, it was. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had great mentors that that helped me, and um, like I said, and just was fortunate enough to be at some really really busy stations and get some really good experience those first seven to ten years on the job. It's it's funny how some departments. I mean, every department's different as far as their rank structure goes. Like mm-hmm. for instance, for me, driver is not a promotional, you know, position. It's more of a like you know that's really what I do now, and it's more and less. Hey, you're old. <laughs> you get to drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's it's fortunate. We you know we had a great um, oh, we had a great union representation back then that made all these promotable. That's just like when I tell everybody I retire as a major. That's usually not a rank you see in the fire service. You know, it's captain and chief. But they they went in. I don't know how many years back, but they came up with a career development plan to say if you're once you're a sergeant, which is a driver, after you if you have so many college hours and you go to this academy, you can become a lieutenant, which is just an extension of sergeant, but it's a pay raise. And same thing for captain and major. Once you became a captain after you're a captain for two years or three years, and once if you had so many college hours and attended this two week academy of leadership and all these other kind of stuff, you, uh, you became a major, which like I say, it was a, it's a, just a extension of captain, but it came with a, you know, with a pay raise and everything. That's pretty actually forward thinking for back then with the college degree. Yeah, it, it was. And it was or just, the I college, think it was, at least the college credits. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that was their, how they justified the pay raise by saying, we're not just giving them a pay raise to give them a pay raise. They're actually having to, you know, achieve something so so that's uh that's how it came about and that's why i know a lot of times i say major and everybody's like that's more of a military rank and it is but that's just what they came up with (laughs) oh it's it's smart it's pretty good yeah that's we'll have to talk about that for my next contract (laughs) talks Mm -hmm. so all right i want to jump to april 18th of 1995 if you wouldn't mind just kind of going through you know, showing up to work that day and, and just take, take it from there. I know you've done this. If I said a hundred times, I'd still be off because it's probably more than that by a long right. shot. Right. Um, okay. It was a, um, it was a Wednesday morning, April 19th, 1995. Um, I always remember it was a Wednesday because of uh, at certain stations in Oklahoma city. You have certain duties you do on that day, you know, to maintain the fire station and, and Wednesday was yard day. And I just remember that early morning guys were out, out mowing and weed eating. Um, I was one of three officers at that station. It was a three, we had an engine rescue ladder and the hazardous materials unit. And I was the uh, officer on the hazardous materials unit that day. And um, it was about, I just I always know it was nine o'clock. We were giving the new guy a hard time about cooking breakfast. Uh, and so I just remember it was around 9 a.m. We were standing in the kitchen, me and the other two officers and the, and the new guy. We let him off mowing and all that so you could go cook but uh we um you know we felt it we heard it my station at the time was uh the murrah buildings on northwest fifth we were on northwest 22nd so we were just 17 blocks just straight north of of the murrah building and like i said we felt the station rattle and shake the windows rattled and uh we thought a train had derailed across, right across from the station we had a, a old borden ice cream plant and um, it was still op- open and operating, had a train, you know, yard there. 
So we thought maybe a train had derailed, went out the uh, east door of the station to look and didn't see anything. And we looked back to the south and saw the, the plume of smoke. And uh, we just immediately self-dispatched ourselves. And uh, so, and I like doing these shows where people know when I say self-dispatch, what I'm, what I'm talking about. Sometimes I'll have to go back and explain, but uh, no, we just self-dispatched uh, ourselves. And uh, that's what was funny. There was guys, one guy that was out uh, weed eating, he was facing north. So his back was towards the Murrah building area. And he felt a rush of wind at his back when it happened. He didn't know what happened, but he thought uh, we're not far from Tinker Air Force Base. So he thought jets were doing flybys. He thought it was like a sonic boom or something from a jet. And so he just kept on weed eating. We had to stop and actually get his attention and get him on the rig to go. But um, once we started getting probably about six or seven blocks away, we started seeing uh, buildings with the storefronts uh, blown out and, um, you know, knew it was pretty significant at that time. You know, it, it came in, there was a little screw up on the address. We have the federal building that has all the federal offices in it. And we have a federal courthouse, which is, adjacent and kind of behind it so but we knew it was gonna be on fourth or fifth street so we had a ways to go and just figured something there exploded and it was blowing out windows you know eight nine ten blocks away and at the time we were thinking a you know natural gas explosion uh or a uh, a welder's torch maybe because there was some a lot of uh construction going on in the area uh, a lot of steel being welded and stuff so we thought maybe a settling torch or something and um, we got down there on the, we came in from the east side and uh, really couldn't see the building at first very good. There's a little hill you had to kind of walk up over on the street. So the first thing we did was set up a triage uh, across the street. There was a YMCA daycare. YMCA building had a daycare in it. Um, at that time, we didn't know there was a day, or I didn't, we didn't know there was a daycare in the actual federal building also, the America Kids day, Daycare. So we just set up that triage there and um, spent about probably 10 or 15 minutes there. And that's when the incident commander at the time called for my, my unit hazmat five to uh, come down to the actual building site and assist. Uh, uh, I think we assist the police department with getting the lady out of the basement. Um, she wasn't trapped by any uh, rubble and that she was like tangled up in like suspension wire from the suspended ceiling, you know, and that kind of acoustic ceiling and, and this, of course, the sprinkler lines were kind of flooding the basement a little bit. Everything was busted. So we got her out of the building and, uh, you know, we completed that assignment and he told us to go around to the south side of the building. And I can't remember exactly who, but told us who our, you know, division leader or whatever it would be at that time, report to them. And um, that's the time when uh, Sergeant Avery, who was a police officer, came around it was at that time when he came around and he was holding Bailey and said he had a critical infant and um you know I, I took uh took I just said here you know I'll take her and um you know at that time 1995 uh police officers weren't as trained probably as they are now in first aid and all that and he was just looking for, for for some help and um and I'm still friends with him and talk to him today and uh he said I was the third, third or fourth person that he came in contact with that actually said, you know, here, I'll take her. Everybody else just kept pointing him to different directions, you know, which, uh, so, so I took Bailey from him and, um, uh, you know, checked her for any signs of life at that time. And, and she was had already passed. Uh, 
she uh, had a slight open skull fracture and her mouth was full of uh, concrete dust and, and things like that. But I checked her for any signs of life. I couldn't find any. And across the street, I saw uh, our ambulance service, uh, IMSA. So I walked over there to them and uh, told the paramedic there, I said, hey, I've got a, uh, I said, same thing he told me. I said, I got a critical infant, you know, and uh, it's kind of weird. I, I can look back now, you know, I didn't know about, we'll get into it, I know, but I didn't know about the photo until like 11 o'clock that night, but I didn't see it for the first time until the next morning. But when seeing the photo, I know what I was doing and when it was because the, the actual photo is really a lot bigger than they cropped it down to just the photo of me and Bailey. But the, the original big picture, you can see the paramedic on the ground. And what he's telling me is that, uh, let me get a blanket because we're not gonna put that baby on the ground because the ambulance was full and they had person on the bench, on the floor, on the cot, and there were several backboards on the ground, all had people laying on them. So I was just standing there waiting for him to get a blanket. And I remember just looking at her thinking, you know, why, you know, somebody's world is going to be turned upside down today, you know, and I had a two-year-old son at the time. So I, you know, I knew baby was close in age. She'd just turned year, a year old the day before the bombing was her year birthday, April 18th. So, um, it was, um, you know, like I say it hit, hit really hit home, you know, knowing that I had one close to that age and, you know, that was just one of them at the time it was just part of the day because as soon as that, uh, paramedic, um took her from me i went and caught up with my crew you know and for we worked we were finally sent back to the station at 11 o'clock that night you know uh we did hit r and r i think once in that time period but after that it was you know 11 at night before they sent us back but and and for my crew and i know there were still being people brought out alive all day long and uh, but from for my crew and our where we were at um it was pretty much a uh just a recovery uh, we did come across one young lady named Sheila Driver that we dug out of the rubble. Uh, she was 28 years old. She was pregnant. Uh, we were actually talking to her. I mean, I, I wrote down all of her information. Um, we had, had set up a rigging system because we were down in this pit area. So we got her packaged up and they pulled her up out of the area and got her on the way to the hospital. And we found out the next morning that she had passed away on the way to the hospital, her and her unborn child. So um other than coming across her and that was like right after i caught up with my crew the rest of the day to 11 o'clock that night was just pretty much a uh recovery recovery uh mode for us and uh you know i don't get too graphic but it was everything from you know finding people just to, to just finding and, and body parts you know and it was just a, it was just a total different experience you know there's there's training and there's reality and you can never train for for that type of reality so it was just, uh, like I say, it was a long, long, tedious day. And like I say, I, I just talked to a guy the other day. He was asking me, you know, when did you have time to reflect on what you'd seen and done that day? And it really, it was, it was like at 11 o'clock that night when I finally got back with my crew, all of our crew together in the rig. That's just kind of what we did. You know, you just finally got to take that deep breath. And that's when we just kind of started processing stuff and kind of, you know, just, talking about things a little bit, but uh, that was the first time that you really had a, had a chance to reflect on what we saw and, and what we did. And, you know, and one of the main things we all said almost in the same breath was when you see that building for the first time, nine stories pancake down on top of each other, 
and and 168 is a is a is a terrible loss. But if you'd have told me there's only going to be 168 fatalities out of that, I would have I would have said that's a blessing. You know, I mean, just to look at the building and think that, and I, I don't say only with any disrespect, but but the only 168 people uh, perished was a was a was a blessing. Seriously. So when you finally get back to the firehouse mm -hmm. a little bit after 11 o'clock at night, I mean, kind of what does that seem like? Um, I mean, is that, I mean, are you, is that your first opportunity to, to call your wife to, you know, do you even try to go to bed? I mean, just kind of take mm -hmm. me through that even. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we were fortunate, we, you know, cell phones in 95 weren't real prevalent. Um, but on the hazard materials unit, uh, we had a mobile phone just so we could call certain agencies and stuff. So we all use that to call to call home. So it was, you know, it was like 11 o'clock, I think, that night before we finally, when we first got to the rig, before we drove back, that we got to, uh, you know, everybody called their wives and, and let them know everything was okay and and uh, that we were okay. And it was really, uh, you know, we talked about it, but, you know, and I think that was one of the few times I can remember that we di didn't immediately come back and have our dark gallo humor that we usually that firefighters usually use to survive but it was just it was just a it was just a quiet somber somber day and i think i think a lot of it had to do with it with the significant the, the size of the incident you know if it'd been one of them deals where you make the call and you wrap things up load up the hose do everything and you're gone it's different but this was we knew this was going to be an ongoing you know experience and and then you know those you know, we pride ourselves on the firefighters and most law enforcement pride ourselves on getting there and making a bad situation better. And we didn't, we, we just didn't feel like we did that day because there just wasn't a whole lot we, we could do. And so, you know, and that was something you had to, it wasn't like your typical call, like say, where you close, you roll up the hose and the incident's over, you go back station. This was something that went on for over a month. And, and with good reason, it was a, you know, it was a media event every day on the news. You know, we just, you hear the names of the victims every day, or you'd hear about another uh, person that was identified or something like that. So it was a, uh, it was a different as a call I've ever, you know, been on. And, and, and like I say afterwards, just the, uh, you know, it's just that somber kind of mood around the fire station for, for a while. But, but with that being said, you know, we had to, keep making calls just because, we, you know, I know the bombing was going on, but there were still, you know, car wrecks and house fires and medical calls and, and all that other stuff still going on. So when we got back to the station, it's not like they said, all right, you go back to the station and rest and you get off at seven in the morning. It was, you know, back to making, you know, house fires and first aid calls. And, and, you know, so you just kind of, that's, that's that mentality where you just have to push it to the back so you can focus on your task at hand on the next call. Did you, were you able to go home in the morning or did you have to stay over? Uh, no, I was, I was, uh, crazy. Um, by that time they had identified my name as the firefighter holding the baby. So when I even got home at six o'clock that morning, there was like media in my front yard at my house at uh, seven o'clock the next morning. So it was, uh, it was different. And, and I can say the, when we got back to station, we were just sitting around uh, drinking coffee at 11 o'clock at night, as firefighters do. And uh, it was, uh, we got a call from the dispatch office, and it was a, uh, the chief overall that dispatched 911 was a friend of mine. 
And he said, hey, Chris, he said, did you carry a baby out of the building? And I said, no, Harvey, I didn't. And I said, a gentleman handed me a baby. Of course, I didn't know Sergeant Avery was a police officer at the time. He was in a T-shirt. and But um, he said, well, he said, I'm looking at a photo here at the AP faxed us. And Chief Mars, that was our fire chief at the time, said, if we can identify who it is, yeah, it's public record. You know, your job's not a private industry. So, yeah, identify who it is. And I said, I don't know if it's me, Harvey. I said, so I asked the other two captains at the station who had been wearing a red helmet with a five. That's what he was telling me, you know, describing the photo. And I said, well, they said they didn't, Harvey. He goes, well, Chris, I'm pretty sure it's you. I just wanted to double check. He said, you know, he said, tell my mustache at the time and all that. And uh, he said, uh, I said, okay, well, what's, what's going on? What photo? And he said, well, you know, the photo's been taken of you holding the baby. And the guy on the other end of the phone says, well, no, if they can identify the firefighter and that that photo is going worldwide, you know, and I thought, okay. So we, we hung up the phone and, and the guys and the girls at the station were like, what was that about? I said, well, the, I said, I guess I was, they took a picture or something. And I said, I guess I'm going worldwide, you know, kind of jokingly, you know, saying it. And then, um, you know, waking up the next morning and it was a, a small inset picture on the daily Oklahoma in our paper. And then I think a guy brought in like the USA Today and the Dallas Morning News. And it was, you know, on the cover. We had the TVs on watching the morning shows and they were showing the reaction around the world to this, you know, to this bombing. Of course, at that time, we still didn't know it was a, you know, homegrown domestic uh, terrorism, but um, they were showing all these headlines from around the world. And it was all these newspapers with that, with that photo on it. So I was just like, you know, blown away. And then, like I said, by the time I got home the next morning, it was, uh, it was, it was a media blitz. They were in my front yard. They were, I had called a good friend of mine, a mentor named John Hansen. He was our PIO of the entire, well, he was for the fire department, but uh, he, he helped me out tremendously getting some police over there and, and, and helping me deal with all the, the media. Because I, I imagine at that time you're emotionally and physically exhausted. You just want to get home and get in the yeah. bed in some place of comfort and, you know, they're, they're, they're blocking you from that. Yeah, uh, pretty much. We had I mean, to have that, a, that had to be a heck of a surprise. Oh, definitely. I didn't, I, I didn't expect it at all. I mean, uh, I mean, especially that quick. I mean, I don't know how they find, I guess they know their ways to find out where you live and, <laughs> you know, and, and all that. And, um, so it, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a world of course, you know, just being a Oklahoma city firefighter, I wasn't prepared for. When did you first really realize the magnitude of this photo? Because, you know, you, you, you know, you kind of joked at that night, I guess I'm going worldwide. It, you know, mm -hmm. today it would be, I'm trending or whatever. Right. All the hip kids say that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when did you realize, oh no, this is, this is for real. Like this is, this is, I'm basically the face of this whole thing. You know, it probably, uh, Jim, it, you know, it took a while. I mean, I, I knew locally the effect it had on people, you know, because I, I saw people locally, you know, in the grocery store or restaurants or more the people I knew or people that would recognize me. Um, you know, it was probably, I guess, um, I guess over the next three or four months after that's when, I mean, 
some letters would come to my house, some would go to the fire station or some would go to just anywhere in Oklahoma and they'd get, they'd find their, I mean, some were actually put in the mail with a stamp on them and it would just say to the firefighter in the photo. That's, that's who the two was on the envelope. You know, of course they had their information and so they would find a way to get it to the fire department. So once I started getting all this just stuff, I mean, people tell me how the photo, you know, affected them and how the, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. I think that's why I was going, wow, this thing has almost taken on a, on a life of its own, which was, uh, you know, uh, unfortunate for, for Aaron, which is Bailey's mom. It made it kind of tough for her to grieve privately. That was some of the stuff I dealt with. Um, couldn't be responsible for it, but the brain in my mind, you know, telling me, you know, making me believe I was responsible for it because that photo put her in that position. But, uh, so, you know, it's probably three or four months into it when I just, I, uh, realized that, uh, with, I, with all these, I mean, I think I got two or three boxes up in the attic, just full of, of letters and cards and, and all sorts of stuff, you know, from people around the, around the world. So it was just, that's when it kind of really hit me. And that's the long thing I struggled with, you know, being, being singled out, you know, in what we pride ourselves on such a team, you know, team profession and doing things together and, and knowing that, you know, guys and girls around that uh, bomb site all day long were were handling and caring for severely injured people. You know, people had already passed and everything. It's just you know, mine just happened to be caught, you know, on on camera, and, and I struggled with that. But again, John Hansen used to tell me he'd just say, "Hey, you know, yes, they're interviewing Chris Fields. Yes, you're the guy in the photo." He said, "But that photo," he said, "you are representing every." that photo represents every first responder that was there that day, no matter what, you know, profession they came from. And Bailey is representing the innocence of, of the loss of that day. You know, the innocence that was lost that day, whether it was fatality or people that, you know, suffered traumatic injuries. Um, I say that traumatic there. I know there's people I'm friends with people today that, you know, recently have had surgeries still getting stuff corrected from the, from the bombing in 1995. Uh, there's still people that have, you know, pieces of glass working their way out of their, out of their body 20 something years later. So, uh, so like I said, it was, and that, and that made it when I, when I looked at it like that and, and, you know, like John Hansen used to tell me, he'd say, you know, this is what it represents. He said, this is what I see when I see it. And that's what I think the world sees is, you know, they don't see Chris Fields. They see a first responder. They don't see Bailey Almond. They see innocence lost that day. So when I started putting in that in that process in that you know process that through my mind, it, it made it easier to to deal with you know. So so that's I mean you're you're talking about a still image there mm-hmm. that that sums up everything that happened that day. But because of that still image, you ended up having to almost go on a, like a media tour. <laughs> I, it, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were kind of, again, not only were you the face in that picture, but then you had to follow up and, and have that extra pressure of, of being that person and, and talking to anybody and everybody. I mean, you're talking to me 25 years later. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it was, uh, and at first it was, it was a, uh, I never considered it a burden at all. I, um, you know, I knew it was a, it was a great chance to represent the fire service, 
uh, a profession which you know I love. I'm fortunate to have had, um, and I, I always have to mention the support I got from the guys and girls on the fire department was was overwhelming. Um, I'm sure there's some that talk bad behind my back, but they it never got back to me. I, I'd be overwhelming support from the guys and girls on the fire department for what they would tell me, you know, representing the fire service like I was and, and, and a lot of things I did. And of course it's that, and I've, I couldn't have told you this 25 years ago, but I've learned so much about the brain and everything since then that uh, chief Mars, and it wasn't anything he did intentionally, but in my mind, he would, you know, he would call and say, Hey, you know, so-and-so wants to do an interview. Uh, do you feel like doing it? And before I would even answer, he would say, Hey, if you don't want to do it, you just tell me, no, I'll call them back and I'll be the bad guy. I'm like, well, I won't be a bad guy. Cause I don't want to, I was, I was associating that. And not that he thought I was a bad guy, but, but he would say, I'll be the bad guy and tell him no. So I was going, well, I don't want to do that, you know? And, uh, and so that's when I just kind of, I didn't turn many of them down. Um, and I really don't think if I look back, I don't think I would change anything as far as that, because that didn't really have, I mean, it was tiresome at times. And, and I did get to the point to where, um, I would only do interviews if they were interviewing, if Aaron Bailey's mom was doing them too, you know, I would, or if she would call me and say, Hey, I'm going to do this interview. Do you want to do it? And I would do it. So that's how I kind of started weaning myself off doing so many interviews, which just kind of put little parameters that if Aaron's doing them, I'll do them. How did it come about that you actually were able to meet Aaron? Uh, third, the, the very next day after the bombing, um, I got a call from a local um, a reporter here in Oklahoma City, or, yeah, Oklahoma City, and she said, "Hey, uh, Chris, would you like to meet Aaron Almond? That's that's Bailey's mother." And my first reaction was, "I said no." I said, "I don't. I have no desire to." I, at that time, I didn't. I didn't. It's only the day after, you know. And uh, I thought, God, what's she going to say? I don't. I don't. What would I say to her? And what's she going to say to me? Is she angry? Is she, you know? you know, is she want to take out her aggression on me? I mean, I, I really, I didn't know what to expect. And, and the reporter's name was Cynthia Gunn. And she said, well, she said, I just got the phone with her and she wants to meet you. And I said, oh, well, let's do it then. You know, that's, I mean, when he, she said she wants to meet you. I thought it was just something the reporter was trying to contrive and set up, you know, I didn't know. But when she said that, uh, she said, well, Aaron would like to meet you and Sergeant Avery. And I said, okay we'll be there so i met her at her grandparents house that that evening uh the day after the bombing and it was uh it was humbling it was still i think about it you know she was the time she was a 20 year old single mom who just lost her you know one year old baby girl and she was actually comforting you know me and sergeant avery um out in the front yard of her grandparents house because we were just like so emotionally drained and moved and all she kept telling, you know, she said, just thank you. I'm, you know, she said, I'm so fortunate. There's so many other parents and loved ones still waiting to even hear, you know, to find out if their loved ones are still in there or if they're deceased or, you know, severely injured, trapped. They just didn't know. And she said that she could tell by the photos, because there's actually one of Sergeant Avery handing me uh, Bailey also. And she said she could just tell we were both fathers. And she was comforted that knowing that Bailey was handled the way she was. 
in her, you know, even though she was already deceased, she was still handled with respect and all that kind of stuff. So like I said, it was an emotional, but me and Sergeant Avery talked about it a hundred times that I guess if it had been anybody, I don't, we were pretty fortunate to be, to be linked with Aaron. Uh, uh, I think she's been a pretty much a star through it all. And like I say the fact that she was out there kind of really lending support to me and Sergeant Avery that day was still one of the more impressive things I've seen <laughs> and experienced. Absolutely. Uh, now when you're doing all this media early on, is it, uh, are you still working your shift with your guys and gals or they take you off the line to kind of to be that media guy that that face? Um, no, I, I, I worked, I worked my shifts and then, uh, if I did anything, it would just be like, um, if we were, when we were still down at the building, um, I would either, uh, like maybe right after my crew was getting sent back to the station what they did pretty much after for my crew our setup um after the first couple of days they just started putting us on like a 12 hour you go down there for a 12 hour shift and then go back to station for your last 12 hours so i might do maybe one if we were leaving you know the 12 hour shift if there's anything else i would just do it on my day off um i never i never requested any kind of granted time or Hey, I want to go do this interview, but it's on a shift day. I need to take off. If they couldn't schedule on days I was off, I just didn't do them. And um, except, like I said, those few times down at the, you know, at the bomb site, we were leaving, and the chief would, you know, catch me and want to know if I would do one. But um, so no, it was just, um, and it was just a deal. I'd, you know, I would, like I say, have them work it out where I could do it on my day off. If not, I just wouldn't do it. Now, back then, I mean, this is again quite a while ago, was there any type of peer support, uh, CISM, uh, mm -hmm. any type of behavioral health team at all that was already established or at least became available to you through this? You know, uh, there was, and we had a, we had started our own CISM team. We had lost three firefighters in a house fire in 1989. And, uh, we had a, like a, team come in from, I want to say South Carolina or something. I can't remember, but, uh, that kind of got us started. And so we had, we did, I think we actually did have a CISM team and it was one of them deals. And, um, of course, you know, we're talking 1995, we were doing what our administration and our CSI CISM was doing at the time, what we thought was the best thing. Looking back, I would say to me, I don't think it's a good thing to take a guy straight from the building into a room to talk about it. That's just, there's no time for you to even process it yourself. So why would I go sit down in a room full of guys and girls? I didn't know how they were gonna handle it. And I may not even know the person on the CISM team and start spouting out my feelings 10 minutes after I've been taken out of, you know, or I've just put 13 bodies in a body bag. Now I'm gonna go over here and talk about it five minutes later. Yeah, you don't even know what your feelings are at that point. Right, so and I'll say those are, those are all lessons learned. <clears throat> and, uh, and so I think I, I'll be, I can say it now. They can't, I'm retired. They can't fire me now, but I think I went to like, I think I remember one time going to the debriefing and then there was rumors that something a guy had said at the debriefing got back out to the rigs because it was our own CISM team. And, uh, you know, I never confirmed that or could hundred percent say it happened, but even the thought of it happening at the time, you know, so we'd pretty much, 
go to the building where we were supposed to do that. And there was, you know, we'd go over here and grab, I'd just tell my crew, Hey, I'm not making y'all go. If you don't want to go, don't go. Um, so we'd go eat one of the meals they had prepared and either get a, they had chiropractors set up. They had massage therapists set up. They had in this little bitty city area, it seemed like. <laughs> and, uh, so we would just do that instead. And, um, I don't think it hurt me or at the time not going because I wasn't going to talk anyway, especially after the rumors we'd heard. And, and like I said, it was just a, it was just what we knew at the time though. You know, it was nobody's fault. What administration's fault. They just did what they knew. And um, so there was, you know, and being hired in 1985, most of my mentors were, you know, gruff smoke eaters that we didn't, and it doesn't mean they didn't have feelings and calls didn't affect them. They just, their their predecessors taught them their predecessor it's just not what you did you just had to deal with it and get ready for the next call that's kind of suck it up buttercup attitude yeah you know and and that's the way i was raised in everything you know literally growing up playing sports you know you suck it up dude you get hurt go to the sideline somebody takes your spot you know or you know and so um and the same thing in the fire service you don't want the you know your people your administration or what you want to call them people above you to think you can't handle the position they put you in and you darn sure don't want the people that are assigned underneath you to think you can't handle your job you know so it's just one of them deals you just suck it up push it down and, and go on down the road which is what i did and, and the main things i was battling i'll jump on into that real quick if that's okay the main thing i was battling sorry i thought i had my phone turned off and uh the main no thing i was battling was um was a lot of um, what I call irrational guilt. And I, there's a saying I always, I can't remember the saying, but I always have it on a slide deal. Talks about how irrational, irrational guilt, whether it's justified or not, will still eat you up just as bad, you know, as what real guilt. And, uh, and my irrational guilt I was dealing with, you know, I felt responsible. I was the last one to hold, you know, Aaron's uh, baby. I was the last one to hold Bailey that she knew of, you know, uh, that she had contact with. And, uh, you know, the fact that she wasn't, like I said, I, I took a lot on me, the fact that she wasn't able to grieve privately. Um, and, and a lot of the families weren't because of the significance of the bombing, but her in particular was really, you know, which you can understand, which was, uh, really heavy media coverage on every, every move she made, the funeral, everything. Um, and so I, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, he was this 20 year old girl, 21 year old girl going through this. And, uh, so I just kind of took on this big brother, little sister role, you know, I wanted to make, I felt like I owed it to her to, uh, and I haven't regretted it. I said, like, I felt like I had to, but I was honored to, to just to, to be there for, her, you know, and, and if she needed anything and, and we're still good friends today. She's since had two children and, um, and we've gone to each other's, children's you know birthday parties and graduations and so we're, we're still in touch we still do a few interviews together every now and then so um but those were the main things i was really that were really weighing me down at, at the time and um but i thought i had a pretty good control of it you know i just if I, you know i'd have bad days but uh i just move on going down the road and keep on going i knew i couldn't let it affect me you know i had uh wife and a son and then you know four years later i had another son so now i got two two kids at home and a wife and a job so 
you just felt like, you know, we're the helpers. We don't need the help. And how's it look if you do need help, you know? <laughs> and uh, I guess just the way firefighters look at it, we're the helpers. We shouldn't need help. And um, when, when did some of these thoughts start kind of coming to your mind? I mean, how, how many um, years are we into this now post-incident? <laughs> Well, those thoughts were pretty much uh, from the instant, from the get-go on, on, but when they started, really started, like I said, I thought I had a pretty good handle on them, thought, you know, it's just something I'll have to deal with, you know, learn how to deal with it, and maybe it'll only affect me around the bombing anniversary, you know, is what I was thinking, and then we're talking about uh, about six years later, no, 10 years, eight, let me, let me figure real quick. Uh, like nine years later, I'm just trooling along doing my job and, and, you know, I'd have times where, uh, I'd have little, little bouts of depression and isolation, just, just off and on, you know, and, and even at that time, by that time, I wasn't really relating it to anything. Just thought it was, you know, I'm 40 something year old guy and that's, that's how your body acts, you know? And, uh, we were putting a pool in our backyard and I was helping the guys bust out some concrete on the patio and it started to rain. And a lot of people don't know it rained the night of the Oklahoma city bombing and uh, not a, not a downpour thing, just a nice little steady rain and that smell of wet concrete dust. I vividly remember it even saying I can smell it. But uh, when I was doing that out in the backyard, it started to rain. I caught that smell of wet concrete dust, which I know now is a trigger. I didn't know that. I didn't know what that was back then, but, um, I think I can pinpoint to that day is when I really noticed that the, the, the bouts of depression, uh, anger, uh, I won't say quick temper. I always had a pretty quick temper, but, uh, the little things that wouldn't anger the average person were, you know, would anger me, uh, isolation, uh, pulling away from my family a little more. That's when I really noticed it ever from that day from the so you know and and again still my wife noticed it she didn't know how to address it or you know or say anything to me or but you know I was a different guy when I walked in the fire station I was still going to be you know officer station officer Chris Fields be the try to be the funny guy in the life of the party and uh, you know keep the positive attitude and but then when I would get home and I could keep it up at the station. And then when I get home, I would just find myself, it, it was getting worse and worse. The, you know, couldn't even hardly drag myself. I, I could drag myself out of bed to go to the fire station, but on a, on our days off, four days off or something, once my wife would get off to work and everything, man, I would just, boom, I just hit the couch and be there all day. Just couldn't find the energy or the want to, to even, even do anything. And, um, you know, that just led to a pretty, tumultuous uh home life and you know and I've, I've learned better communication skills since then you know like coming home from a bad shift and just saying you know give me about an hour to myself let me catch up decompress here and then we can talk and we can do whatever but back then you when they're saying what's wrong i noticed this change you just can't you just keep saying nothing's wrong nothing's wrong well and eventually and rightfully so they start thinking it's them you know, and I think that's where my wife got to. That she hey, there's something, you know, so it's now she's upset because she thinks it's her. And, and I really can't give her any answers because I'm really not for sure where it's coming from. 
but the little bit I am sure where it's coming from, if I admit that, you know, that's weakness. You know, I'm the protector. I'm taking care of this family. So it's just things you just, you know, you just battle the ego, you know, number one, your male ego, which is pretty vicious. And number two, you got that firefighter ego and uh, the two of them together don't mesh real well. But it just got, um, you know, it got to the point to where uh, arguments over the smallest thing, home life was, I was just disconnected. And so uh, she pretty much, you know, I got the option to get help or get out. And I'm Chris Fields, I'll do what I want to do. So I got out and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a long road. It, we were, it led to extramural affair. It led to, you know, just embarrassing, humiliating friends and family, you know, friends that were actually reaching out, trying to help me. Those are the ones I was pushing away because they could see it by then. Everybody could see it. And, you know, and I, I bet it was, I don't even know how many guys at my station even knew me and Cheryl were separated because I just, that was, I didn't bring that part of me to the fire station. I left it at home. And the ones that did know, man, I just make it look like I was the happiest guy in the world. This is exactly where I want to be, you know? And, and I found myself, like I said, pushing away the people that were trying to help me and finding my little group that wanted to say, Hey, you're a grown man. You do what the hell you want to do, you know? And so those were the, that was the group I was, Hey, like I said, I used to help you. I was getting my counseling at one o'clock in the afternoon at a strip bar from other firefighters who were, you know, not living at home or divorced or whatever. That's who I was getting my, my life guidance from at the time because they were telling me what I wanted to hear. And, um, so like I say, this went on for, uh, uh, we were separated 17 months and, um, it just, you know, by that time I had, uh, I never, I never, I never had a, uh, a substance abuse problem. Fortunately, um, I did get to where there'd be nights I would, I had a doctor and I'd get me my little Xanax, uh, prescription, you know, and, um, mix a little alcohol with the Xanax and that way I could forget about what was going on in my mind, get some rest and get ready for the next day. But it got to be where I noticed that it really wasn't even the, I got to a point and, and it's an old cliche thing, but I, I was really to the point where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was miserable all the time. I was just exhausted trying to live a double life. Have a wear. I, I will highly not recommend that to anybody that will wear. It just wore me out. And, um, and I got to the point to where it really wasn't even the, the, the bombing issues I thought I had. Now it was just to the point that I thought I had done so much damage to my personal life, to my wife and family and friends. I thought, you know, maybe just be better off if I could, if I wasn't here, they could, they could reset and start all over. And so I, I mean, I didn't like, sit down and say, what's a lethal mixture? What's a lethal, but I did, I took more than I should of alcohol and Xanax one night and, and just thinking, you know, if, if it, if I don't wake up, I don't wake up, you know, and I don't know what, I don't, I don't remember what my thought was going to be. Well, if I do wake up, what are you going to do? I just knew that if I didn't wake up, everybody could reset and, and start all over because I'd done so much damage. And, uh, obviously I woke up and, um, I think when I was laying there, I, I still picture myself laying on the floor, looking up and the ceiling fan spinning in this apartment I had. And I just thought, I just looked around and I thought, man, there is no way that this is my purpose in life. 
you know, as long as I've got breath in my body, I can't believe this is, you know, God's will for my life to, to live in this little bitty apartment by myself and be miserable every day and have to take, you know, drugs at night to get to sleep, you know? And so I, uh, you know, and, and like I say, I'm blessed now with what I get to do, but at that time, I just knew my purpose was to be a good father, a good husband, and a good friend, which I was not being any of those three. And I knew I had to take steps to get back to that. You know, anything on top of that would be a, would be icing on the cake or a blessing. I just need to get back to being the, the father and the husband and the friend I knew I needed to be. And uh, I said, I called my wife that morning and told her I want to come home. And by God's grace, she said, come on. And uh, I had a I was speaking a deal in Arizona and a guy asked me, he said, when did you know that you had turned around, made the right choice and that everything else will be okay? And I said, the minute my wife said, come home, I knew, like, I thought, okay, if she's got the, the grace, if God gave her enough grace to forgive me for everything I had done, I, I knew that everything was going to work out. It wasn't easy. <laughs> it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick fix. It was, uh, you know, it involved, I moved back home, uh, you know, and, 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 and rightfully so with, you know, trust issues and communication issues. Um, you know, she asked me to, after about a couple of months, she asked me to move back out because she wasn't ready and I don't blame her. So I did for about a month, about a month or two. And that's when we decided we both had to put our heads together and get through this together. You know, as much as I needed to be worked on, she did too. Not, not necessarily from anything in her life, but from the things I had done to her. So, so it was something we had to get through together. And, um, like I said, and, and the amazing thing I tell everybody is when I reached out for help, the, the people that were reaching out to help me were those very friends that I had pushed away. And so, uh, I started the long process and went to a facility, you know, for, for treatment, diagnosed PTSD and, and went to a, a treatment facility and, uh, you know, and things have just kind of, like I say, it wasn't an easy path. I, and I still have days today where I'll just kind of think about things and kind of get a little sad, but I don't, I just, I just let it roll. I, I know I'm going to, if I'm having that feeling, I don't try to fight. I don't say, um, we'll get me a drink. That way I can forget about this, or I'm going to take this and that way I won't have to deal with today. I just let it come. So if I have a day where I'm going to be quiet, or if I need to cry for a couple hours or whatever, I just do it. And I just, uh, it doesn't change my lifestyle anymore like it used to. So what was kind of your, your treatment plan to try to get back to where you were, you know, your pH levels were good. You were kind of neutral and right. being able to kind of you know live with your family again and work and, and, and not be so angry and then just, you know, right. well, well, what did you end up doing? Well, I, um, like I said, once I, I, once I, you know, like with anything, once I admitted and, and reached out for the help, I got with our fire department chaplain and I, and I went to a treatment facility out in California, uh, called WCPR. And I learned about what they call EMDR therapy. And, and once I got back to, Oklahoma, you know, I was there like six days, I think six or seven days. And it, it was, it was great. And, um, uh, um, but I knew it's just one of the deals where when you go to one of those things and when you come home, you've got to have an outreach to continue because you can't just be feeling good those six or seven days. And I got this, then you come home and you're right back in your environment with no, fortunately for me, there's a, uh, 
a lady here named Kathy Thomas, who's, she's like my little superhero. She's uh, the clinician I started going to and we did EMDR therapy. And, and I, the funny thing I tell people too, is uh, I always thought if I can just get these, these guilt issues and all this stuff from the bombing and, you know, and, and some of those images from the bombing, if I can just get those under wraps, I'm good. Um, but it's crazy when I, when I, when I went in there and went in for EMDR therapy and me and her start visiting and processing things, I found out that the, the bombing was pretty much just a catalyst to, uh, it was, it was the, where my bucket got full and overflowed and my bucket was full from a bunch of, you know, by this time I'm 20 something years into my career, you know? And so a bunch of, bunch of calls and, uh, you know, one thing that, um, you know, it's just part of my story and I'd never tell anybody before that time. And it was something that I had never dealt with, but I pushed in the back of my head and had the irrational guilt about it. You know, I was being um, molested when I was 10 years old. And that was one of those, another irrational guilt things where, you know, so once I worked through all that and then, uh, like I said, there was just so many things that throughout my career too, that we, uh, you know, as firefighters, we, like, you know, we lost our three firefighters in 89. I was on that call and that's, you know, Benny Zellner, who one of the captains that was died in that fire was, he's like one of my mentors. He's like one of the reasons I got on the job. And you know, I talked about my friend's dad, who was the chaplain. Well, Benny was a, a guy at our church that led a bunch of the youth programs. So, um, so, you know, to lose Benny and a mentor and we go to these funerals and we laugh and we cry and we hug it out and we tell stories and that's how we deal with it. We don't ever process the actual feeling of it, you know, and there's, there's several other, you know, um, I mean, calls that were, you know, pretty traumatic in my career as far as losing close friends. And, and, uh, but even as we were talking about my counselor, you know, even the little, the little calls, you know, of, uh, you know, doing CPR on an infant, you know, and just little things you, you think that you've just, you know, put away and you, that's what you do. It's your job. Well, no, you're human, you know, and uh, the, the emotions you feel are, are real and they're, they're common. And, uh, but, you know, we're, we're taught to push those down and, and continue on, you know, and, and that's what we do. And um, for me, the, uh, I had pushed them down for so long and then the, uh, you know, and then, and then the bombing happened and uh, that was kind of overflowing. And then, even before I reached out for that, the in between the bombing and, and hitting the, the bottom was uh, uh, we met a car wreck with a uh, firefighter buddy who him and his 12 year old son were, were killed together uh, in a head on, you know, wreck, you know, and uh, at that time in my career, I was in a position, I had left the rigs for a little bit and I was in a position where I was like the assistant PIO. So I had to, the PIO was gone. So I had to go, you know, PIO that incident, you know, and it was like I said, and then a uh, uh, firefighter I worked real close with, you know, we made a simple smoke investigation and he came out and just, you know, dropped dead right there at the tailboard. And, uh, you know, so just there are just so many significant calls. And like I said, the little calls of, uh, you know, uh, you know, to me, even, even I noticed towards the end of my career, once I started was okay with dealing with the emotions, that even the calls like where you make, uh, in the fire service, you make a call at six o'clock in the morning on to check the welfare. 
99% of the times it's an elderly person that's, you know, passed away in their sleep. And, you know, that's, that is a, that's a call you make a hundred times in a career. And, um, but I used to think we'd get there and you'd go in, you'd check them and you'd go out and tell the, the wife, you know, of 60 something years that he's passed away. And, you know, and she puts her head on your shoulder and says, what am I going to do? I woke up with him every morning for 50 years. You know, I'm going, you know, I think back on those and those, those to me, those are as traumatic. It doesn't have to be a national media covered event to be a traumatic event. You know, doesn't always involve, you know, a, an infant death or a 15 or 16 year old in a car wreck that's killed. It's just sometimes those little simple calls that affect you as a human because they would affect you if you weren't in your uniform and it was your family. So, I mean, it's just, we just carry it with us. We carry their trauma with us sometimes and it just gets to be too much and we're too cool to deal with it sometimes. So. So going back to the firehouse after your treatment, I mean, you, you basically spent two decades acting. I mean, mm -hmm. firefighters are Emmy award-winning actors and actresses. I mean, no doubt. we, we put on a show and mm -hmm. uh, you finally get back after treatment. At, at what point did you begin to open up and, and talk about this? Um, you know, I, it was when I got back to the rigs and you know, I went to treatment, I came back, I was, um, I don't know what it was. It wasn't anything. I didn't go in there with a set plan and say, I'm just going to tell, I mean, I just walked in one day and we were eating breakfast and after, uh, I just, I can't remember what even triggered the conversation, but I just told them, you know, where I'd been, what I'd been through. Uh, of course, you know, they knew my career. I worked on these guys for 20 and 30 years, but you know, but as far as the personal stuff and the things, you know, that I'd done to family and friends and uh, I just opened up and told them, this is, this is what I did. This is where my life got to. And that, you know, told them I've been to a f facility for, you know, for treatment, diagnosed PTSD. And, you know, so it was just kind of a, and I just, I've never been the quiet type anyway. So I just, uh, I just basically spilled my guts right there in front of them all. And uh, I truly did notice a, a change in, uh, and it wasn't like we would come back after calls and all of a sudden have these, you know, huge hand-holding meetings, you know, and spill our emotions. But I did notice that it was, uh, that they were more willing to open up and talk about things if we did get on the subject, you know, and even things affect them in their personal life, you know, the loss of a relative on their, you know, not even, not even job related. Uh, I noticed that uh, we were all willing to more, to be a little more open and, and talk about it. And I found myself not being, um, I wasn't afraid to ask questions anymore of, of anybody. Cause I remember people asking me all the time, Hey, you okay? You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine standard answer, you know, I'm fine. You know, so if they tell me that I'm fine that quick, I know they're lying, but, uh, because that was my MO for years, but, um, you know, in a perfect example, we had a guy at the station and he, uh, you know, he was always a six, our shift changed to seven, you know, he was always the five thirty five forty five guy getting his, everything checked out and doing, you know, and I was, I was always there at six, even till my whole 31 years. If I'm not there by six, I'm late. So, so I'd always see him doing his stuff and I noticed that he got to be six, six fifteen, six thirty. Uh, instead of smoking and joking after breakfast or dinner, he'd kind of remove himself, you know, I thought, you know, and so I, 
hit him up one day and I just said, you know, hey man, is everything okay? Dude, he opened up. We talked. I bet we was out there for an hour and a half in the rig room. Some tears were shed, everything. And I just told him, I said, you know, because uh, I had talked to him when he first came to the station, you know, and gave him the old, you know, which I guess he took it the way we took it when we were new boys, the old station officer speech, you know, hey, man, this is your family. So if you ever need anything, you let us know, you know. And so I told him, I said, I told you if you ever had a problem or needed anything, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to work it out. And he said, well, I figured that was just like coach speak. <laughs> he said, but when you, but when you ask me, but today when you ask me, he goes, I felt like that was my opportunity since you were asking my opportunity to, to open up and, and tell you what was going on. And, and the funny thing was none of his was even really fired. I'm not a psychologist. So I don't know. But from what he was telling me, nothing he talked about was fire related. It was just home problems, financial problems. I mean, just, you know, everyday life. And that brings up a thing, you know, I think a lot of people forget that, yeah, we're firefighters, but we're also humans. We have, you know, so you're dealing with all this trauma at work. And that's if you came to work after having a fight with your spouse or, if the kids have been a little hay in the last couple of days or uh, well, they say in a 20, 25 year career or 20 year career, you spend a third of your time at the fire station. And that's the only time your wife's car won't start or the washer dryer breaks or, you know, or something electricity goes out. It always happens when you're at the station. So and that's what I told him. I said, you know, just don't ever, you know, so, you know, it was just, it was great to see that, uh, you know, that, that worked out well for him. He's, he's doing great on the job. And, and, you know, I don't say that, say, you know, look what I did. I just say, I, it made a point to me that I won't be shy about asking somebody, you know, I'm not gonna wear them out and hound them, but I'm not shy about asking somebody if they're okay. So let me ask you this, uh, speaking to your crew, mm -hmm. that's a pretty big step being mm -hmm. open and just telling them what you've been through. The next big step is now, publicly talking about this with not only your department and, and whether it be the new recruits, but actually talking about this on a national level, everything you went mm -hmm. through. I mean, how, how did that kind of come to be and how did that go? Um, well, first I'll say that, you know, I, I being a station officer and, and telling my story, I think that's, that you, I think all this stuff that we're talking about now, the, the mental health for first responders, it's got to start at the top. So, you know, so I think somebody at the top telling their story helps the other people, you know, loosen up and see that it's okay to, to be human and have these emotions and these feelings. And, um, uh, I, you know, I ran into I, how this got started for me was I, um, a guy I had met at the uh, WCPR in California. I stayed in touch with um, one of the founders of it, and um, I stayed in touch with him. He called me one day and said, hey, I got a buddy of mine that's down in Norman speaking at a deal. I thought you'd like to go hear him. And uh, so I, I did. I went and I went and listened to this guy speak and we talked afterwards. And uh, I was, our chaplain was down there listening to him. And so we were down there and um, I just kind of told him he knew my story a little bit. But I just kind of filled him in on everything else. And he just said to me, he said, hey, you've got a uh, he said, man, you've got a story that will help first responders. He said, I don't care if they're firefighters, law enforcement, dispatchers, nurses, doctor. He said, and if they're in the first, he said, it's just, it's a, you need to tell that story. And still I thought, eh, I don't know. I'm pretty good about cutting jokes in front of my friends and family and, you know, telling them, but, uh, and then a, um, a really kind of 
thought about it. I didn't take it real seriously, but, uh, and then a, a guy named Jay Dobbins reached out to me one time and, uh, he just, he was having a deal out in Arizona. Uh, Jay Dobbins is former ATF, uh, agent that infiltrated the hell's angels. And he's got books out and everything. Anyway, he called and he said, Hey, Chris, uh, Sean, this other guy, he said he had called me and said that you might be interested in, you know, speaking. And I said, oh, I've been thinking about it. He goes, well, I'm having a little deal out here in Arizona. I'll fly you out here. And, uh, uh, if you don't mind. So, but it was, there were several speakers, this deal. And so I got up there and for the first time told, told my story and, um, and the, the reaction I got was, uh, pretty good. I mean, it was like, uh, I thought, you know what, this, this people really are listening, you know? And, uh, I mean, so I was just, uh, I had several firefighters pull me aside and, and say, and you just described me, you know, and I was going, I said, I think I describe all of us really, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and they would, you know, I don't, some of them say, I just can't, I just can't reach out. I just can't do it. You know, and I wouldn't fault them and say, well, you know, I just, I just encouraged them to, you know, and gave them my phone number and said, Hey, you know, you call me if you ever, you know, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers. Uh, this was three or four years ago. I said, I don't, but I'll promise you, I'll find somebody that, you know, does. And that's why I tell people now I've made enough friends and connections that, because I'm the last one that's going to tell anybody how to live their life and what they need because of, I mean, I'm not a very good example of how to do it correctly, but uh, I am example of to show that it doesn't have to get to the point where I got, you can cut it off. You can, you know, what Bonnie Fife used to say, nip it in the bud, you know, you can, you can do it before you're, you know, you're sitting there considering taking your life. And, um, so it's just a deal to where, um, one thing led to another and, uh, man, I got so much going on right now. It's, uh, it's almost overwhelming I'm involved with the, I got a weekly webinar deal now on Tuesday nights with several other guys that we do. And, uh, it's, it's going, it's just going great. That's great. That's, that's awesome. Um, if you would, actually, I think that's a great way to kind of end this show. Um, just absolutely on a high note, the fact <laughs> that you're, you're paying all this stuff forward. Um, right. If you would, could you kind of, kind of plug that show, um, let everybody know where to, oh, where to track you down and all that stuff? Yeah, it's a, um, I'm, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. That's I think that's how you know, I see you on Twitter. I'm on, uh, you know, Twitter and my deals, you know, at firefighter for OU and, uh, and then I'm involved with um, a couple of guys, uh, uh, Doug Monda, he's a retired SWAT guy, and Chris Scallon, he's a retired police officer from Norfolk, Virginia, Raul Rivas uh, from Florida. The, the four of us together, we have a show called Trauma Behind the Badge. Uh, it's on every Tuesday night from, uh, I think it's 7 o'clock Eastern, uh, just like an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half. Um, you can go to our website, which is www.traumabehindthebadge.com. And you can register to watch the, the webinars and they'll send you the link. We do them live. It's raw. It's real talk. Um, I, we, we, we need to start putting a warning up, you know, because it's like sitting at the fire stage talking or the police officer sitting out in their car talking before they head on the patrol. It's, it's rough. It's not always, but we're not shy about it. It could be rough. It could be crude. It could, you know, it's not always politically correct, but, uh, but it's real, you know, and uh, we have different people on. We, we, we touch all, you know, 
police, fire, military, several of the guys uh, on this team with me are, are former military also. So, you know, we've, uh, we have first responders that have been where we've been and been through what all these guys have been to the, to the bottom and are back, you know, doing what I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, it's just, we, we pay tribute to them for number one, telling their story. We let them promote anything they've got going. And uh, we always have a clinician on there with us. It's not just a bunch of, excuse me, a bunch of firefighters with raw, gruff, cuss and talk. We have a, we have a several clinicians that work with us that, that come on with us. So they're able to, you know, yeah, this is how I feel. This is why you feel that way. And this, you know, so it's a good show. And, you know, like I say, we reach all, we've got, you know, folds of honor recognition coming up in the next couple of weeks for them. We do all, like I say, military first responders. And man, I'm just, I'm just loving it. The, the response has been, been outstanding. And uh, so I'm just, uh, you know, loving life. My, my, my marriage is about as good as it's ever been. My, my boys are 27 and 21 now they're outspreading their wings and so man life's just good that's perfect all right well again thank you so much for for being on the show and sharing your story i know um i mean you've shared it a lot so i and i'm glad that you still are, are willing to share it i mean you bet seriously um for all my listeners out there don't forget to comment and 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 share this show i mean chris's story really needs to be be heard and uh with well, that, I was gonna say too, I, I, yeah. I appreciate what you're doing. Your 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 show and your media that you use for for you know to better the first responder environment is uh much needed and, and much appreciated. Well, it's I, I enjoy talking about it. Um I'm really listening about it more than anything. I mean, that's kind of my right. role, but um just the fact that people are talking about it, that's that's different. That's not something that when you started the job you know, in 85 or when I started right. in 2001, that wasn't happening. So I'm glad at least mm -hmm. in 2020, we're able to talk about this and put it right. out there. Right. I totally agree. All right. Well, cool. Well, again, thanks again. I, uh, I can't wait for this uh, COVID crap to get over with so we can meet people <laughs> live in person. Yeah, I know. I understand. No, me All too. Right. So cool. Chris Fields, thanks again, and uh, take care. And all my listeners, I'll talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it.